A little bit later, we're going to talk about some more information off of the schedule here. But this morning, we're going to have an opportunity to hear uh, from Diane Langberg. I first got to know Diane Langberg. This is going to be hard for some of you to believe, but when I was, uh, it was back in 1981 when I just started working in Philadelphia and uh, was involved in the area of divorce recovery, we were trying to find someone who could speak uh, on the issue of the stages of divorce and recovery. And uh, someone said, you ought to contact this young therapist in town named Diane Langberg. And uh, we began to get to know each other and, and work together there. And over the years, I've had the honor to work with Diane on a number of different projects. But um, th- interestingly enough, the thrust of her counseling over the last 40 years, and she's been involved now in, in, in counseling for 40 years, the thrust has really been in two areas. The first area has to do with, with particularly sexual abuse and trauma. Uh, and she has expanded beyond her own private practice in that now and is involved in serving literally around the world uh, where there are uh, trauma and struggle issues uh, dealing with sexuality. Um, the other area that, that uh, Diane has, has worked in is working, believe it or not, with pastors and their families. Uh, and she said the sad fact is, is those two issues intersect very often together. Um, She's written numbers of books. You've seen the two articles that are back on the table back there. Uh, those are available to you. So she's written a lot of articles. She's written numbers of different books. Uh, two I wanted to point out that we, we have three of them on our book table, one's more specifically for counselors, but one's entitled On the Threshold of Hope, Opening the Door for Healing for Survivors of Sexual Abuse. Uh, that's a very helpful book. Her latest book is entitled Suffering and the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and how Christ restores. And uh, this is, is, is reflecting beyond just sexual abuse to other aspects of trauma in life. And she really digs into the challenge of what's called the problem of evil. Uh, you deal with anyone who has faced trauma, anyone who has faced the evils of abuse um, and dysfunction, and the question of evil comes up, and how can you still believe there's a good God when he... When, when these kinds of things happen. And, um, and so she addresses those issues directly uh, in this book. Uh, we do have one other handout I want to point out to you this morning that's on the back table. If you haven't grabbed one of these, don't go for it now. But uh, as, as Diane speaks this morning, what you're going to discover is she's going to be sharing a lot of facts, a lot of information. And uh, we felt like, you know, it would be helpful to put all that information down on a piece of paper. So don't you don't have to worry, oh, I missed that, or I wish I... Or, I wish I could remember what she said there. We got the facts down on paper here for you. So that, that's on the table back there along with those articles uh, by Diane. So in a minute, we'll be hearing from her. That, that, like I said last night, this, this, uh, if you weren't here last night, uh, Diane was, was not able to come because of weather issues and cancellations of flights. Uh, so she arranged yesterday to have a talk that's never been made public except one time when she gave the talk and videoed. She got that talk digitalized for us and sent to us yesterday. So you'll be hearing uh, a, a fresh new word from Diane. There's numbers of videos of her on the, on the Internet that I'd encourage you to look at, but uh, that you won't find this one here. Okay, so in a moment we'll be hearing from her.
I got a one base shop uh, and one helper, so I pretty much see every car that comes in, uh, good and bad. You know, it drives me crazy. Well, a lot of things that drive me crazy. Uh, cheap Chinese replacement parts. Uh, engine designs that make it virtually impossible to do simple maintenance. I think of Toyota Avalons. Uh, catalytic converters, ridiculously priced. Top of the list. Uh, people who don't pay attention to the warning signs. Happens all the time. A car gets towed in. The guy says, I don't know, my engine just quit working. And so, you know, I'm questioning him. Uh, is it making any funny noises? You are, yeah, kind of a little clacking sound. Any lights on the dashboard? Yeah, that check engine light was on, and that other one, uh, the, the, the blinking one, uh, oil pressure thing, I think that was blinking. How long? Oh, I don't know, four or five days. So, of course, I check the oil, and there is none, and uh, the engine is toast. It's going to cost a fortune at, at best, uh, it's going to be a valve job. Uh, at the worst, it's probably going to be a complete engine rebuild. I mean, it's like, buddy, <laughs> check the warning lights. You'll save four grand. At this point, though, it doesn't do much good to be upset. I mean, it's done. You know, the best I can hope for now is just sort of wise them up for the future, which I do quite a bit with my customers. Uh, well, most of my customers are driving older cars. I'm a one-bay shop, so, you know, people with newer cars, they're going to the dealer, you know, under warranty. So I get mostly folks with older cars with not a lot of money, and, uh, which is fine. It's, it's actually kind of, a, it's kind of a ministry thing for me. I'm an elder at, at my church. I know. I know. <laughs> most people think, Elder, they think, you know, banker, lawyer, some business dude that's in charge of a lot of stuff and a lot of people. I, you know, what can I say? I don't mind getting my hands dirty. And they told me I was an elder, and so I'm an elder with all the trimmings. So, like I said, uh, most of my customers sort of they are driving older things, and they don't have a whole lot of money. And... Uh, I get a lot of single moms, uh, so I spend a lot of time sort of explaining and, you know, educating them about things, and I get a lot of questions, a lot of times about more than just cars. Well, I don't know why I'm the go-to guy, but it seems like I'm sort of the go-to guy a lot of times. So, uh, like the other day, uh, the other day this gal comes in, and uh, with bad brakes, she had ignored the squealing, and so, of course, she doesn't just need you know, pads and rotors, she probably needs her drums turned. But uh, so I'm trying to go easy on her. She's a gal from the church. She's a single mom. And um, so we're at, she, her husband uh, had divorced her um, after he had had an affair with a young gal he met at work. Um, a scumbag, her husband which I know is probably not proper elder talk, but um, it's a scumbag. Anyway, um, we're, we're out at her car. The car's on the lift. My, my helper uh, is at lunch. 
And so we're out at her car, and uh, I'm sort of, you know, trying to educate her on, on pads and rotors, and she's not paying a whole lot of attention, and she says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. So I figure she's going to ask me something about, you know, her brakes. And then she, <laughs> she almost whispers. She says, do you think it's okay for Pastor Pearson to kiss me? I wasn't sure. I heard her. I said, uh, what? Pa- Pastor Pearson? Our Pastor Pearson? She says, yeah. And I said, uh, <laughs> he, what do you mean, kiss you? He, he kissed you? She doesn't say anything. I, I said, did he, did he do anything else? And she starts crying, and I hand her the only cling thing I've got, a shop towel. And she's, she's still crying. And um, she says, eventually, uh, yeah, I was going to him for counseling one, sometimes two nights a week. And at first it was all right, but then he told me he thought I needed more intimacy, and, and he did more than kiss you. And she whispers, yeah, I'm so ashamed. Now, I do not want to be having this conversation with this woman. Uh... <laughs> I mean, Pastor Pearson, this guy, he's been at the church for five years, and he is the absolute best preacher we've ever had. Literally since he came, our attendance has doubled. And uh, he's a good guy, at least. I thought he was a good guy. And if he's a screw-up, what does that say for the rest of us? I mean, it's not like I've exactly had the purest thoughts my whole life. I, I do not know what to tell her I, <laughs> I mean you know where's the manual she's still crying I'm not about to hug her and uh, so finally I just said so what do you want to do and she says I don't know I don't want to ruin the church good church. So I guess we should have seen it coming, the elders. (laughs) I don't know what to do. Good morning. Is it still morning? (laughs) As Chip said, I am a Christian psychologist, and I have done most of my work within the Christian community. And yet in that space, the things I have mostly worked with are abuse, trauma, and violence for over 40 years. 
I am also a lover of Jesus and his word and believe he has called me to the work that I do. It is his work, and it is a privilege to do it, but it is a grievous work. For I see many who've been oppressed, raped, trampled underfoot, abused and battered, and sadly often by those who say they are Christians, followed up by those who often purposefully cover up such things or are quietly complicit. I would like to begin with a story. It is a story about another church in another time and place. I was in Ghana several years ago speaking at a conference about violence against women and children, and while there, went to Cape Coast Castle. Hundreds of thousands of Africans were forced through its dungeons and out through the door of no return onto slave ships. Within the fort, there were five dungeon chambers for males. And descending down into the darkness of one of those dungeons felt quite claustrophobic. It was a place where 200 men were shackled and chained together for about three months before being shipped across the sea. We stood in one of the male dungeons listening in the darkness to the whole horrific story when our guide said this to us, do you know what's above this dungeon? And of course, we shook our heads, no. The chapel, he said. Directly above 200 shackled men, some of them dead, some screaming, all of them sitting in filth for three months, sat God worshipers. And they sang up there, and they read the scripture, and they prayed, and I suppose they took up an offering for the less fortunate. The slaves could actually hear the service. The worshipers could sometimes hear the slaves, though they did have someone down there to make sure the slaves did not disturb the worshipers. It took my breath away. The evil, suffering, humiliation, and injustice were overwhelming, and the visual parable was stunning. The people in the chapel were numb to the horrific trauma under their feet. In fact, they were actively complicit. Under the form of worship in that chapel in Ghana lay the darkness of slavery, oppression, and tyranny, all things that blight and destroy humans created in the image of God. But I think we know that Christianity does not look like being folded up with evil and worshiping on top of dungeons. That following Christ does not look like complicity with a system that butters our bread and fills our coffers built on the backs of those created in the image of our God. It does not look like praying and singing and collecting money on top of screams, suffering, filth, and death. Our guide pointed to the church above, and he said this, heaven above, hell below. But I would argue that heaven was not above, because that is not what heaven does. It is what heaven actually does that is the reason we are here this morning. 
because heaven leaves the chapel and goes down into the dungeon in order to bring those in order to bring those so enslaved out into the light and freedom so they can go back in turn and get more we were in the dungeon So we are here today to talk about the church and mental illness, and I'm going to focus us more narrowly and invite you, some invitation, to enter the dungeon of abuse with me. We don't really have to go very far for it, because you see, it's in our homes and our schools and our military and our neighborhoods and our churches. And... Over 40 years ago, when I first started working with victims of any kind of abuse, the church largely ignored it and often actively denied that it even existed. We didn't believe it was there, and we were sure it was never in any of the homes represented in our pews or the lives of our parishioners, and never, never within the church itself. Sadly, it has taken the media and the courts to make it abundantly clear that sexual abuse is in all such places and has even been perpetrated or covered up by some we have held in high esteem. I am grieved that it was the media and not the voice of God's people who dragged it into the light. But I believe with all my heart that like our Lord, who was anointed to come to the afflicted and the brokenhearted and the captives, that you and I, are called to follow our head and leave the comfort of our chapels and enter into the devastating suffering of those who have been shattered by the evil of abuse. Jesus demonstrated in the flesh the character of God. Now it's our turn. That's what we're to do. When God's people worship over and separate and untouched by dungeons, they are not worshiping the God of the scriptures. There is nothing in the scriptures to suggest that being complicit or uncaring and deaf to the cries of suffering humans is godly. God has sown his life in you and in me. And in the midst of this dark and fallen world, which is filled with blasted and ruined humanity, he has sown his life in us and flung us out. He has, however, also made it clear that the enemy has sown seed too, and that it is growing and maturing right alongside the wheat. It is with us, not just out there. He said so. And he said it will be so until he returns. The Cape Coast dungeons are under the chapel. They are not a separate building. They are not outside the fort. Our God has called us not to ignore the dungeons in or under or outside our sanctuaries. And so as we consider the topic of abuse this morning, we must start by knowing that it is not a problem out there. It is also among the people of God And if we fail to understand and believe our Lord's teaching, we will fail him. So come with me and look into this dungeon of shattered, wounded, confused humans that our God so loves, some of whom attend Seacoast. 
Sexual assault is said to be our nation's most rapidly growing crime. Of course, all the information that we have about the scope of abuse and rape depends on information volunteered by the victims themselves. So obviously the true extent of abuse is unknown because many compelling factors favor non-disclosure. And this is just as much true in the church as it is in our culture, sometimes more so. Someone is sexually assaulted every two minutes in this country, which means by the time I'm done, that would be 12 people. Childhood sexual abuse occurs in the lives of one in four women and one in six men in the United States before they reach the age of 18. Sex abuse against boys, which is often not spoken about, has been called America's hidden epidemic. Boys are sexually, who are sexually abused are far more likely to become drug, drug addicts, suffer from mental illness, or attempt suicide. The average age for abuse to begin for girls is six, for boys, ten. The majority of abusers are male, about three to seven percent are female. Most are considerably older, however, there is a troubling increase in younger perpetrators today. And law enforcement has said in recent years, 33% of those arrested for sex crimes nationwide were younger than 18. Obviously, this has significance when we think about church policies. One in five women in the United States has been raped. 44% of those victims are under 18, and 93% knew their attacker. Now, you stop about... Stop and think about the numbers I've just given you in the context of the number of people in your church or in your women's ministry or in your youth group. And you begin to grasp something of the frequency of those crimes. Oftentimes when I've spoken to women's group, I've said, okay, one in four. You think about all the women in your church sitting in a room and you go like this, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and you get some idea of what's sitting in your pews. Victims are three times more likely to experience depression, six times more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder, 13 more times more likely to abuse alcohol, 26 times more likely to abuse drugs, and four times more likely to commit suicide. Given the impact of sexual violence on an individual's life and on society, given the frequency of its occurrence, it is crucial that we as the church not be silent. Not only does God call us not to be silent, he calls calls us to learn how to be a refuge and a place of hope and healing for victims as he is. We have men and women in our churches who have suffered and continue to suffer in their lives from sexual abuse. Most never tell. Some tried to tell, but they were not believed. And most of them never hear a word about it from a pulpit. They've never heard what God has to say about such life-shaping evil. And of course, some of them have experienced abuse within the confines of a church. And their presence in our pews is one of desperation, but also great courage. Others have been abused in the place we call God's sanctuary, and we, the church, have covered it up in the name of God, who is light and truth. And as Scott just said, that means hiding nothing. 
So what does it look like for a church, for pastors or teachers to enter into this dungeon? I'm going to give you some governing principles to think about and use as you think about your own churches, your own ministries, in terms of how to think about the crippling problem of abuse of any kind. And given the stories that sit in our pews, many of them unknown to you, what does it mean to be a healing community? Number one, we need to acknowledge the problem. We haven't been very good at that. Child sexual abuse, rape, relentless verbal abuse in homes, physical violence in marriages and homes. It's not just out there. It is in here. We need to acknowledge it out loud. We need to speak about it from the pulpits. We need to approach this topic, number two, with humility. Because churches have often little to no education about these matters, so we we ought to be honest about that. We have not invited victims to tell their stories and learn from them. We have not been taught about offenders and how they function. We have not developed policies and safeguards for the children who are under our care. We teach about God and marriage and sex and parenting, but it does not usually include the topics of sexual abuse, rape, or domestic violence. Number three, any kind of abuse is an abuse of the vulnerable by the powerful. They are more powerful in position, size, age, verbal capacity, knowledge, life experience. Abuse is never a 50-50 proposition. The scripture is very clear that human beings are defiled. We are defiled by what comes out of us. Abuse is the fruit born of the abuser, not the victim. No victim, no child is ever responsible for sexual abuse. A grown man or woman can be abused by someone with power, particularly at a vulnerable time in their lives. There are countless ways, other than physical force, to coerce another human being into doing something they do not want to do. Number four, research has told us over and over again that we can't tell who's lying. We like to think we can. So someone comes and tells us that someone sexually abused them, and we think, well, I know that person. It can't be true. But scripture, God's words, says, folks, your hearts are so deceitful, you don't even get your own. (laughs) Scripture tells us God does not judge by what his eyes see and his ears hear. That's really quite interesting. What does he judge by? Righteousness. Who is righteousness? Christ. Anything that does not look like his character is not righteous, no matter what somebody says. We judge by what we see and hear, and we assume we know the heart behind it. But scripture says that anything that does not look like Christ is off plumb. It's what we call sin. Scripture says the tares or the darnell grow right beside the wheat, and that when they are growing, if you read in the Logos commentaries, (laughs) 
What you will discover is they look exactly alike until the fruit. We tend to trust the likeness as they're growing side by side, and when the fruit comes out cockeyed, we say it can't be so. Research consistently shows that it is extremely rare for an alleged victim, child, or adult to lie about abuse, and when they do, they are usually doing it to protect the perpetrator. Number five, one of the things both research and experience make clear is that those who offend are master deceivers. They're so good at it, they don't even know they're doing it anymore. They have literally habituated deceit. It's like a reflexive thing that they just do, which means eventually they don't even know truth. That means that the words and the tears of an offender are never sufficient indicators of the reality of what is going on inside his mind and heart. Such deception is extremely entrenched and slow to change because a sex offender over time loses his capacity to tell the truth from lies. And because of that, we must not just be concerned about protecting children and victims, which of course should be a high priority, but we need to protect the offender from himself. He keeps sticking his arm in the fire and he doesn't even know it. If you love somebody, you stop them. When we do not understand the level of of deceit, we actually make it easy for them to sin again. And God says, sin is the worst thing in the world. If we love the abuser, we will know that, first of all, true repentance is actually quite rare. And secondly, it is slow and words cannot be trusted. Keep in mind that one of the most powerful weapons of deception in the church community is the use of spiritual language. Number six, church leaders are not trained to investigate sexual abuse or do forensic child interviews. I don't think that's a seminary course. Actually, church leaders aren't trained to investigate any crimes. But we need to have honesty and humility about that and acknowledge it. So when somebody alleges abuse, which is a very serious crime in this country, we call the civil authorities. If you found somebody dead on the floor of the pastor's study, you wouldn't investigate it before you called the police. But we don't do that with child abuse. To fail to do so is frankly arrogant and inevitably will damage the victim and certainly endanger others. Reporting crimes of any kind does not prevent us from being the church. Hiding a crime is against the law. Number seven, we need carefully researched procedures and policies for protecting the vulnerable in our midst. So I think it's often very wise for churches to consult with one of the outside organizations that exist that helps churches learn how to protect those in their midst. Policies for victims, policies for the congregation, policies about offenders. Number eight, sexual abuse in Christian organizations. That phrase should be the king of oxymorons. It's not. And when a shepherd feeds off the sheep under his care, God is honored when the shepherd is removed. 
Vulnerable, sick, or broken sheep should always find safety in the house of our God. Number nine, as Christians, we often fail to report the crime of abuse because we think we are protecting the family or the church. Now, the family and the church are both God-ordained institutions, and they are worthy of our protection. But listen carefully. There is nothing sacred about a family or a church full of sin. When the people of Israel were going to the temple and following the rituals God had given them, but were full of sin, God just basically destroyed them. He brought their enemies in, they destroyed the temple, and scattered the people to Babylon. Our God does not protect institutions that he himself created and designed when they are enterprises full of evil. God thinks sin is the worst thing in the world, not the loss of reputation and not the loss of an institution. It's an old Scottish theologian I love who said this, Sanctuary is a place having no complicity with the evil that makes sanctuary a necessity. And number 10, your churches have gifted lay caregivers in them. As I've traveled and taught and things like that, churches have begun to develop a core group of godly men and women who then study sexual abuse, rape, domestic violence, who then are ready, trained to come alongside victims as they step forward. It can be a wonderful ministry in the dungeon of abuse. And lastly, number 11, many victims turn to alcohol, drugs, or get depressed, or suffer PTSD. So when you meet with a troubled church member with some of these issues, simply asking about abuse as an exploratory question should always happen. It should be a question during premarital counseling. Teaching about relationships in the church should always include an understanding of abuse, verbal, emotional, physical, and sexual. Teach your church that such things are never acceptable to God, no matter who does them or how important they are. Cape Coast Castle in Ghana is a powerful parable The people of God worshiping while sitting on top of the dungeons filled with suffering, living their lives in a way that was, in fact, diametrically opposed to the God they claimed to worship. Because he left glory and safety and beauty to enter the dungeons of this world and our hearts, making us like himself. Those chapel goers missed him because they stayed away from the dungeons. They stayed clean and separate. They made a lot of money. They probably gave some of it to God. But I pray that the church in the 21st century will not be like those chapel goers. I pray she will gladly follow her Lord down into the dungeons where there is, in fact, sexual abuse and rape and violence and manipulation and lies and deception the shattering of precious lives made in the image of God and intended for glory. If she does not go, she is not like her Lord. And if she does not go, it is an expose of the fact that her own heart is a dungeon. 
because it is filled with distance and separateness and selfishness and complicity with evil. When our God interfaces with this world, he leaves the higher and descends. He leaves beauty for chaos. He left pure for filthy. He demonstrates that God does not just speak words, but lives them first in the heart dungeons of human beings and then through their lives into the lives of the people in the dungeons of this world. Jesus demonstrated in the flesh the character of God and we are to do the same. That is when a church becomes a healing community. When God's people worship over and separate and untouched by dungeons, they are not worshiping the God of Scripture. There is nothing in the Scriptures to suggest that being complicit or uncaring is godly. But those scriptures do say that the dungeons of Cape Coast Castle were there first because they were present here. They don't get to be out here unless they're here. In Matthew 21, we have Jesus' triumphal entry, and it culminates in his entrance into the temple where men were trafficking in things other than righteousness and truth. Jesus drove them out. He called them robbers, those who take what is not theirs. They had profaned God's temple. I suspect we could say those who abuse are robbers, don't you think? And when the traffickers in unrighteousness were out, you know what happened? The blind and the lame came in, and he healed them. And the children came in, And they sang his praise. God's temple, when the traffickers and the robbers were thrown out, became a hospital and a nursery. Jesus says the praise of the vulnerable in the house of God silences the enemy. The littlest ones with the least power in the sanctuary singing praise silence the greatest enemy we have. When we silence the cries of the vulnerable, child or adult, we are not protecting God's house. We are actually profaning it. I pray that our churches will be bold in driving out unrighteousness and we'll throw our arms open for the lame and the blind, the little and the weak, thereby establishing strength against God's enemy and silencing his foe. May we go out with love and with truth to the dungeons in our pews, in our homes, and in our communities, transforming them until they are places full of the glory of God, who did in fact descend into the dungeons for you and for me. Thank you.